You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles and open them to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1 through 34. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we find an allegory, it's a very graphic allegory of the way that the Lord found His people Israel and how they then related to Him after He found them. And this image, which also uses the imagery of prostitution, is something that comes back in our text from Hosea chapter 1. So let's read Ezekiel 16 verses 1 through 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live! I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments." I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourselves male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. 
And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe! Woe to you, declares the Sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you are, declares the Sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife. You prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Let's now open Scripture once more and read Hosea chapter 1. So the sermon this morning is on Hosea 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 1, and this afternoon we'll take the first part of chapter 6 of the same book. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea son of Beeri during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not 
your God. Yet, the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, You are not My people. They will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, My people, and of your sisters, My loved one. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the topic of prostitution has been making headlines once again in national media recently. There are currently two constitutional challenges making their way through the courts in Ontario and in British Columbia. And the matter from British Columbia is before the Supreme Court of Canada on a legal issue of standing. It's to be resolved in 2012. The Ontario Court of Appeal has already heard the Ontario case, and as far as I know, that decision is still pending. And very soon, the matter will have to be resolved. The question is whether it will be the Supreme Court of Canada or our elected lawmakers who will determine what the law will be. Now, in case that sounded familiar to anyone here, I was just quoting, for the most part at least, the beginning of a very fine policy report for parliamentarians written by the Association for Reformed political action, and distributed about a month ago or more. And one of their recommendations is to follow the example of Sweden by fining and imprisoning those who purchase the so-called services of prostitutes and who control them. Prostitution is part and parcel of the exploitation of women and children, and so we should demand, uh, or we should punish the demand for it. And That's worked well in Sweden, and not to immediately give this divine sanction, but listen to what the Lord says in Hosea 4, verse 14, I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution, nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. Uh, People without understanding will come to ruin. Well, at first appearance, such laws would have put the prophet Hosea in big trouble. In chapter 1, he's told to marry an adulterous woman named Gomer. In chapter 3, he buys a prostitute. It's Gomer after she's been unfaithful. And then he has to have her for himself only. Now, since Hosea was obtaining the woman and was going to love her and having and have an exclusive relationship with her, he cannot be accused of engaging in prostitution. In fact, he's acting to help get a woman out of prostitution. Now, all this was symbolic of Yahweh's relationship with His people. He's not recommending that all men go out to marry prostitutes and save them from prostitution. Not at all. With Hosea, we encounter a prophet whose life became a living symbol of God's relationship with His people. And we have to see it that way. The commands Yahweh gives him are striking and disturbing so as to help us learn and believe. Looking at the big picture of the book of Hosea, we should be astonished by this long-suffering love of the Lord. And that's the real point. God is just. And Hosea spent many years warning of the coming punishment, but 
Yahweh also let Hosea see further to a time of redemption to follow. He let him see deeper to redemption's foundations in God's love. God taught Hosea about God's love welling up within his own heart, ever seeking out his unloving spouse, saving her from her own sins, and having her for himself forever. We as the body of Christ, the church, are to be that spouse forever. We here are in the feminine role. And there's hope for us, in spite of our sins, if we will turn to the great love of the Lord, our husband, for us. So let's hear God's Word from Hosea. Hope for us. Yahweh's self-originating love finds a way to save His unfaithful spouse. Yahweh's Self-originating love finds a way to save his unfaithful spouse. And that's hope for us. The first thing to see is that God's spouse is unfaithful as charged in the text. That God's judgments are indeed truthful. And God's salvation in the end is powerful when we get to the yet. The Lord will do these wonderful things. That also comes in the text. And These things are often put side by side. The punishment is said, and then shortly after, the salvation is proclaimed. So we'll see that at the end as well. So first of all, God's spouse is unfaithful. We have to see this so that we see how the love doesn't originate from the spouse, the the bride here, the wife, but from Yahweh and His self-originating love. So we first need to be familiar with Hosea's time and place of where he lived and prophesied. His father, it says, was Biri or Beeri. Um, and so that tells us Hosea is a real historical person, lived in a, a real time and place, though we don't know really much else about the father or the son. Hosea's prophecies are especially meant to offer rebuke and correction to Israel. The northern kingdom as distinguished from Judah. It was one great kingdom, but after Solomon died, was split into two. And Hosea came about 200 years after that kingdom split apart. In Hosea's day, the northern kingdom, which is the larger one encompassing ten tribes, named Israel, in his day, it changed from being quite powerful to coming under severe threat, and finally to being conquered. Hosea never tells us where he came from or where he lived, but his prophecies show that he was very familiar with the northern kingdom of Israel. And then notice how Hosea describes the time when he received the word of Yahweh. He says, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So Hosea recognizes one southern Davidic dynasty, the four kings in a row, from the smaller kingdom. He recognizes them as more legitimate than the several dynasties of the north. He does not even mention the last four short-lived kings of the northern kingdom. He points his readers away from them. He only specifies that the Jeroboam whose reign, in whose reign he prophesied was the second Jeroboam because he's the son of Jehoash. <clears throat> and he directs 
his listeners really away from these kings. For instance, in 3 verse 5, speaking of the Israelites returning to seek Yahweh their God and David their king. That's the southern dynasty. And so God gave His prophet a revelation of the importance of the line of David from whom the Christ would come. We could say much more about these various kings, but let us continue with the text and see what the Lord Himself highlights about this time. So verse 2, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, so that introduction to his speaking can be linked to verse 1, the word of Yahweh that came to Hosea. And so Hosea then opens both in verse 1 and verse 2 by demanding faith from us that we would accept these words as, that he records as true words of Yahweh, Israel's God. Hosea speaks for him. And what did Yahweh say? Verse 2b, Go. So this is the command of Yahweh. Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. Now the book of Hosea has its share of difficulties. As soon as you open your Bible commentaries, you'll find one here. And there's a variety of opinions as to whether Hosea really married or whether it's just a made-up story. People are concerned here not to have God's prophet literally marrying a prostitute. But on the face of it, when you read this, it's very matter-of-fact. As surely as Hosea had a father named Beery, so he married a woman named Gomer. Well, then people are concerned that if Gomer was real, seems to be, then surely she was not really a prostitute. But here too, the text is quite clear. Our translation says, take an adulterous wife. The original language says, a woman of adulteries. And it's in the plural. Or you could translate, a woman of prostitutions. And the, the plural here is used to say that this was her habitual practice. She was an unfaithful woman. Whether she had been married before is unknown, but certainly she was in the sinful habit of sharing her body with other men. Indeed, this must be the case for the symbolism to work. She and her promiscuity represents Israel, while Hosea as the prophet, in his office as prophet, represents the Lord. Some commentators say that she was not faithful until, or sorry, she was not unfaithful until later. But if that were so, why would Hosea's marriage to her in the first place be symbolic of what the Lord says here? The land being guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So now put yourself in the prophet's shoes for a moment. He is a holy man of God. But right from the beginning of Yahweh's call to him, he has to marry a woman who has a history of promiscuity. The Lord calls him and bids him die, as Luther once said of the Lord's call. Hosea has to give his entire life to the message. He cannot hold on to whatever dreams he has about his future Get a wife of prostitution, says the Lord. Not just one who's slipped up once or twice, 
But one who knows the habits, one whom others know is a prostitute. It's essential to the symbolism that she was a known prostitute. And the Lord commands Hosea, marry her and have children. And by the way, says the Lord, the children are going to be adulterous too. Our translation speaks of children of unfaithfulness, perhaps suggesting they come from an unfaithful woman, but the the original uses the same word as for the woman, children of adulteries, children of prostitutions. They'll carry on the practices of their mother, which fits the symbolism of Israel having children who really belong to the Lord, but leading their children off away from the Lord as well. And so the whole thing is a picture of Israel's relationship with the Lord. From the beginning, the Lord chose a bride who had already turned to false gods. Now, we may not wish to think of Abraham, the father of all believers, in this way. But Joshua once told the people of Israel that if they would not serve the Lord, then he said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods around you, the gods of the Amorites and Canaan, or, he said, the gods your forefathers served beyond the river. Now, the river is the Euphrates River, and the, their forefathers were only on the other side of the Euphrates with Abraham and Nahor and Terah. So before Abram was called from where he was beyond the river, or the Euphrates, he and his family had been serving other gods. You just need to think of when they go to get a wife for, or when Jacob goes back and he works for Laban and then flees from Laban and Rachel hides the household idols in the saddle of the camel that she's riding. So they're in the habit of serving false gods. That's how the Lord found His people. People who are prostituting away from God and were not observing the original calling from creation to serve God. And renewed with Noah, again, not observing that. So Yahweh is in the habit of rescuing prostitutes. And Hosea has to drive that home by his marriage. And there's nothing illegal about the marriage as such. A man today could marry a prostitute who has changed her ways and promises to be faithful to him. But Hosea has a unique calling that applies only to him, for he's made aware from the start that even the children will follow these ways, and that makes it pretty clear that the wife is going to be an example of unfaithfulness to them. And she's not going to change just because she gets married to Hosea. So Hosea's calling demands everything if only God's people will take to heart the message. We can understand this kind of symbolism. It's already used in Exodus 34, verse 15, where the Lord speaks of not following the other nations who, quote, prostitute themselves to their gods. Now note in that, that the Lord is already saying by that that those nations actually do belong to Him and should be worshiping Him. And the Lord had also said this to Moses at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, you are going to rest with your fathers and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the lands they are entering. They will forsake Me and break the covenant I made with them. 
It's very sad. The Lord knows it. Hosea 4, verse 18 says, Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. In 5, verse 3, the Lord says, I know all about Ephraim. Israel's sin is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. In 5, verse 4, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. So it's rooted deeply. In 5, verse 7, they are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. And Hosea 7, verse 4, they are all adulterers burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir. And chapter 8, verse 9, For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. And 9, verse 1, In the middle you've been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute. And Ezekiel 16 we read, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. So we should understand here that actual prostitution may be included as a part of the problem when the nation gives themselves over to sin, but the point here is that it's the deeper problem of serving gods who are not our Creator, gods who get our souls and bodies, but for whom our souls and bodies were not made. Now do we recognize this sort of thing? Any time in history that the church has been unfaithful to the Lord and found its pleasure in bringing, here's one good example, bringing the Super Bowl onto the big screen of the church on Sunday, it's prostitution. The hearts of God's people are lusting after other pleasures and the Lord has to take the back seat. Or when the church has raised armies and fought wars, It was seeking glory on earth instead of preaching the Gospel and leaving war to the civil leaders. Or when the church is deceived by smooth-talking men and women who say they are prophets or they are professional philosophers or scientists and they know better than the Lord. And when these people, what they really want is for others to follow them. And when the church is deceived, falls into adultery. Because the church thereby breaks its bond with the Lord, his spouse is unfaithful. So at a very basic level, ask yourself, who gets your very best? Is it the Lord? Is it His service? It's really remarkable that the Lord calls His church His bride. How tender that is. How loving. How intimate. How even romantic and delightful. He even speaks through Hosea of wooing Israel into the desert to have her all alone just with Him. Oh, how the Lord wants His people to love and to serve and to worship Him. He wants our hearts. Think how merciful He was then to put this symbol of unfaithfulness right before their eyes to take His own prophet 
and in a certain sense, spoil his prophet's whole life just for the sake of calling his people back. So the Lord was reaching out to them, calling them, rebuking them, giving them the message that would at least save some. We can be sure that there were those who heard, repented, and believed. But it seems that they were few. Well, God's judgment was also truthful. So let's see that. In the verses 4-6 to as well as verse 8, we read about the children Isaiah has with Gomer. And the reasons for their unusual names. They have a boy, a girl, and another boy. Jezreel, not loved, and not my people. Those are their names. The first name is a reminder of the beginning of the Jehu dynasty of kings in Israel. And this Jehu that's mentioned in verse 1 is the last in that dynasty. Or sorry, this Jeroboam. And Jehu had become, had begun this dynasty of four kings in a very vicious way. At Jezreel, he had even killed the king of Judah, though this was in no way commanded by the Lord. And now, four generations later, Hosea names his son Jezreel because the Lord is, says, I'm going to exact punishment for those atrocities four generations back. The house of Jehu, that is, his family, will be punished. And indeed, the next king of Israel was the last in Jehu's line. And then after four more short-lived and ineffective monarchs, the kingdom was gone. So that was Jezreel. The next two names, you could say they're really designed to be conversation starters. He would say, Lo Ruhama? What do you mean? They're standing there with their three children. That one's Lo Ruhama? What do you mean? You don't love this little girl? Because that's what Lo Ruhama means in Hebrew, not loved. And then they say, Lo Ami? That's not a boy's name. Who's not your people? And then, of course, this is the whole idea, Hosea then has a platform to start preaching repentance. To start bringing prophecy. And Hosea would repeat God's judgments against His people. They have never, they have been unfaithful. They give their best to other gods. They never recognize that they have everything from Me. They forget that I made them into a nation. They burn and lust after false gods. And they make Me burn with wrath. And so says the Lord, here is My judgment. Lo Ruhama. Not loved. No compassion. No more chances. I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them, he says. It's in verse 6. I leave them in their sins and here is my next judgment. Lo Ami, not my people. No possession of mine. Not special at all. Just like all the other nations. Lo Ami, not my people. And in saying this, Yahweh, the relational God who revealed His name as Yahweh, the name of constancy and faithfulness, this God says to His people that the relationship is over and He is divorcing them on just grounds. You are not My people and I am not your God. End of 
verse 9. <clears throat> so these words, taken at face value without any qualification, these words simply break the covenant relationship that He has established with them. The essential covenant relationship is that these ones, as compared to the rest of the nations, these ones are His special people, and He is their God in particular. But this is over. You are not My people, and I am not your God. And that means utter separation from God. They must undergo a punishment where there will be no sign of His favor, and this is God's truthful judgment. And that judgment is just the thing that the church has had to suffer after times of apostasy and idolatry. You see that at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ where the Jews had become more and more self-absorbed and they aggrandized themselves. They made themselves great. They boasted in themselves in their Jewishness. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came, they crucified Him. And soon after... The nation was destroyed. The beautiful temple of Herod was burnt and broken to the ground. And the Jews were forbidden to live in Palestine anymore. When the church, again in times after that, did not heed the voices of a John Huss or a John Wycliffe in the 1400s, and the Lord let them slip even further into superstition, idolatry, indulgences, etc. And then the Black Plague killed millions, reducing Europe's population by as much as 50% in the 1400s. Europe was nearly overtaken by Muslim forces in the early 1500s. It was a time of great fear. The church suffered much. Even those who reformed the church still had to suffer alongside the rest. And the Lord tested them greatly. Well, brothers and sisters, the church in North America today should also expect judgment if it too continues on its selfish, worldly, willful path. Here we speak of the church in a very general way. God's judgments are true. And His church is often unfaithful. Yet He remains God, and for His own sake He will preserve a people for Himself. And that's obvious from our text as well in verses 7, 10, 11, and 2 verse 1. So God's salvation is powerful. And verse 7 makes an abrupt turn which readers of the prophets encounter more often. You read of judgment, and more judgment, and Punishment and more punishment. And suddenly it's as if the Lord cannot bear punishing any longer. And He gives a prophecy of restoration. Now there's no contradiction in these things. You have to remember that some the prophecy you read so quickly span, let's say, 50 years. And you get the words of one prophecy at one time followed by the words of another at another time, and they're put together on purpose, and it's edifying for us, but remember that sometimes, so you don't right away think there's a contradiction. But understand this as well. Either the judgment is against one group, and the salvation is given to another, as in verse 7, or the same group, or a remnant of the group, is in view, but the judgment is at one time, and the restoration comes later. And that's the case in the verses 8 through 11. 
So let's see that. In verse 6, the Lord had just said, I will no longer show them or show the house of Israel um, any love that I should at all forgive them. And then in verse 7, the Lord says, yet, yet, it's like a however, nevertheless, but yet, I will show love to the house of Judah and I will save them. Not by bow or sword or battle or by horses or horsemen, but by Yahweh their God. So, he distinguishes Israel, northern kingdom, from Judah. And somewhere from within himself, he chooses to forgive and save and promises to carry it out entirely on his own. But he limits it to Judah. And now God Himself speaks and He speaks about Himself. He, he says, I, in verse 7 at the beginning, I will show love. But then by the end of the verse, He speaks about Himself in third person. And I will save them, not by these things, but by Yahweh their God. He doesn't say by Myself. And He does this to highlight His relational loving name, Yahweh, faithful God. And God here claims for Himself all the glory of salvation. This is verse 7 then where he's applying this to Judah. And the way God presents it there, He claims for Himself the glory of saving people. And God is glorified in all things. He's making all things serve His glory ultimately. He's glorified in condemning sinners and He's glorified in saving sinners. But He loves to save. He loves to glorify His name by working salvation. There's His delight or His good pleasure. Just like Jesus is the Son of His good pleasure. So our God has powerful ways. He has resources that we don't. It's not just that He has a deeper wallet. No, He has a better heart. Yahweh's love is amazing. He is in the business of rescuing prostitutes. He can find it within Himself to love those who have spurned His love while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. Now look yet at the verses 10 and 11. In verse 9, God had just said, you are not My people and I am not your God. And that's the worst thing He could have said. And as people must go through that punishment, they must feel that loneliness of being without Him. And yet, afterward, something better is still possible. There's again that great adverb, yet. Nevertheless. And this time, it's not a distinction between two different groups, but it's a distinction in time. Punishment, yet afterwards. And so he says, yet the Israelites will in the future, be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not My people. So that's past. They will, sometime after that, be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land and great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, My people, and of your sisters, My loved ones. <clears throat> so brothers and sisters, here's again the yet and the nevertheless of God. There's hope for us. 
Yahweh has a deep love within himself. It doesn't require our initiative. It can work even in the face of complete apostasy. Yahweh's self-originating love finds a way to save his unfaithful spouse. The Lord will fulfill his promises. Not even the adultery and prostitution of his church will prevent him. In the end, he will save a remnant, and it will be one church united from all nations under one King Jesus Christ. And just the fact that the Lord gave to his, gave prophets to his people when they turned away, that in itself is evidence of his great and deep mercy. Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so many others, they're all sent by the Lord to call his people back. What a God of grace. Now, if we look at ourselves, we see no reason why God should love us. We are sinners. Our hearts and words and actions are unfaithful. We don't walk around everywhere like the bride of Christ. We don't trust Him like we should. We don't obey Him fully. We allow others to insult and misuse His name. And we indulge in entertainment of which He would have no part. We serve ourselves constantly, so ours are not the ways of love. But His are. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. When we were God's enemies, you see, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Romans 5, verse 10. And because He did that, Now, even when we fall short of His glory, He beckons us. He woos us. He speaks tenderly to us. He promises forgiveness of all those sins because He already gave His Son for us. And He holds out eternal life. And in all this, brothers and sisters, He's giving Himself. His presence is our assurance of everything. And He grants that even though we, His spouse, are unfaithful and even though His judgments on our sin are full of truth, His salvation is powerful. It's amazing. We no longer love our sin. He is our God and we are His people. And in our hearts of faith, we wouldn't want it any other way. And so He has saved us not by bow or sword or battle or by horses or horsemen, but by His own name. His name of faithfulness, Yahweh. He found within His own heart the motivation to act. He desired to show that side of Himself, the side of deep down, burning, jealous love. And God found this in Christ His Son. The Son loved the Father so perfectly with that deep down, burning, jealous love. And the Father loved the Son so entirely. And the Holy Spirit flows between them as sovereign love. God, the triune God, out of Himself found the resources to save His unfaithful spouse. And if He had not done so, we would always be lost. And so this is love. Not that we loved God. That's not the great thing. But that He loved us and sent His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. 
Jesus Christ our Lord came to show this love and to save us totally. Hosea could see punishment coming and Israel had to go through it. But after that, he saw hope. He saw salvation. He saw the love of God streaming down. And that love is our hope. And it always will be. And with that love securing us, we can show the love of this precious Gospel of grace to others, including prostitutes. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.